Welcome back, everyone, to Culture Colander. Before we jump right into it, we just wanted to let you know that this episode will look a little bit different because it is our first ever collaboration, and our guests who we connected with through the power of Instagram are here to talk with us about a critically acclaimed and kind of controversial new movie, The Whale. We're so excited. So we have Lily and James here from the awesome Groovy Movies podcast, and I will let them introduce themselves and tell us about their work. (laughs) Hello. Hello. (laughs) Yes, my name is Lily Austin. And my name is James Brailsford. Uh, We're co-hosts on the Groovy Movies podcast, which is a film discussion podcast that we co-host together. We've done one season so far. Last season, we took it in turns to pick a film and then we discuss it in depth. And for series two, we're going more thematic. So we're going to look at the best flops in cinema history. What makes films are timeless. So we go more for themes in series two. So you don't particularly have to have seen the film that we're discussing because you may have seen one of the films, but also it's just more a general chat about an idea to do with films. Yeah, so this is the the perfect start for us kind of getting in depth on a discussion. (laughs) <laughs> I'm so excited. Yeah, so th- this this is this is much more like a traditional groovy movies episode for us, where we're, we're going f- focused on one film. So very excited to discuss it with you guys as well. Yeah, this is your wheelhouse, and, and hopefully this episode that we're doing is not a flop. <laughs> <laughs> it might be a cult classic. So true. Oh. <laughs> so I guess before we get into some facts about the movie, it might make sense given the whale is about a 600 pound man named charlie to talk about the sort of terms we want to use sure yeah yeah that was definitely something i was thinking about a lot when i was researching for this episode because i mean the term that came up a lot in things i read was morbidly obese Mm -hmm. but that i mean just hearing that feel it feels like a really horrible way of of terming someone and and when i did some research i see that actually now that's like in general been recognized as like not and and not what is recommended that say like doctors talk about when they're when they're speaking Mm -hmm. to someone about their weight so i'm opening the question up to everyone what what is the term we should be using for someone who's severely overweight i mean I'm just going on the term that I keep seeing in a lot of the articles, which is morbidly obese. So I'd, I'd be interested to hear what the the preferred word, what what a doctor would refer to the condition as if he was talking to his patient. That would be interesting, because yeah, I, I, I like I say, I just keep seeing morbidly obese. So that was one I was thinking was the acceptable term. But yeah, no, I'm so glad you both brought that up because that is a term that is everywhere, and like you're both saying, it's in the most prestigious institutions, and in that way. It, It has a very sort of like legitimized, almost stamp of approval tone to it. But I know listeners probably know this already since I never stopped talking about my degree in linguistics, but I love words. And the etymology of the word obese is literally the Latin for eating oneself big. And because fatness isn't always a result of lifestyle choices it can be but it's not always a lot of fat activists don't like the term obese right and i think especially like you were sort of saying lily morbidly obese feels almost like doubling down on this like stigmatizing way to describe a neutral body type so what i've seen in fat forums and from fat activists and even i think maybe in the book elise and i read recently called You just need to lose weight in 19 other myths about fat people. It seems like for a man of Charlie's size, super fat is sort of the preferred term and it's created by fat people. And that's how I've been referring to him. But I'm curious to hear, I don't know if Ellie, you have 
something to add on the matter as well. No, I think I definitely defer to people like Aubrey Gordon, who wrote the book that we read. And we really love her and recommend that book very much. And another point that she makes in the introduction to her book is the use of the word fat phobia. Mm. And that saying phobia, A, conflates the oppression of fat people with mental health situation like phobias like that's a real thing that people experience and so it's already ableist language and it doesn't encompass the fact that we do as a society have a fear of becoming fat because of how we see fat people being treated but it doesn't tell the whole picture that it is a systemic form of oppression and we see it all around us when we start looking so saying anti-fat bias seems to be more appropriate so I think those terms as well and then saying I guess super fat or if we're referring to people who are not to the size that Charlie is just saying fat yeah yeah it's so funny because as well I, I, with, with the word super fat I would just think oh that's a very dismissive term it, like so yeah it, I've it, never it, even heard that term before yeah oh he's super fat but you know like I've got to get used to it because I just imagine that in the realm of like correct speak it's uh, morbidly obese seems the more uh, you know it seems the more academic term to use totally yeah totally and it's I think also hard when for so long fat just in our society has been coded as an insult yeah totally so I even still viscerally now being entrenched in certain fat activist spaces I still bristle viscerally at the word super fat Mm -hmm. and I use it and I practice using it to get used to it and because that's what fat people are asking us to refer to them as but it's it's also interesting Audra and I have spoken about this in the past that not everyone who's fat is in the fat activist Uh. movement and so I do know that there are people I was thinking that that there are people who are in larger bodies who if you said oh you're a fat person they would feel insulted because canonically we've used that as an insult and so it doesn't entirely represent the language that everyone would want to be identified with. Absolutely. We're just deferring to the activists that we have heard from. Uh, It doesn't represent everyone. And another reason why we might not want to defer to doctors is that there's a lot of anti-fat bias in the medical community. Mm. So I'm just going to go with that. No, I think that's such, I think it's such a valid point because there is so much stigma around Mm -hmm. it. That means that the language itself is never going to be perfect for everyone. But I guess all you can do is I guess go for the community who have asked for this right yeah like we're doing so. our best I also was so, gonna yeah. say when we're talking about thin people how do we feel about just calling them thin people rather than like normal since in the U.S. plus size is the average right I don't know what it's like in the U.K. but yeah it's the same it's the same yes all right all right so movie facts Out the gate, we just wanted to give a little bit of, I guess, history and some factoids on the movie itself. So it is based on the award-winning 2012 play called The Whale, and it's written by Samuel D. Hunter. And the play is, quote, auto-fictional, meaning it's fiction, but in some respects it does draw on the author's life. And some of the similarities between playwright and protagonist include that... Just like Charlie, the playwright is from Idaho. He also grew up gay in the church, and he used food a lot as a way to medicate his own self-loathing that stemmed from the anti-queerness in the church. And he, quote, got pretty big, but I think it's important to mention he is thin or straight size now. And second of all, we do know that he did not ever come close to weighing what protagonist Charlie does, because Hunter, in an interview with the Times, 
said he weighed when he weighed more he would wear size xxl which is available at relatively accessible retailers it's not like he was probably forced to make his own clothes or go online to hyper specialized stores for only fat super fat infinifat people other facts about the movie directed by darren aronofsky and produced by jeremy dawson ari handel and darren aronofsky and then the cast includes brendan fraser as protagonist charlie sadie sink as charlie's daughter ellie quick note (laughs) i often call elisa my gorgeous brilliant co-host ellie so if we ever say ellie said insert anti-fat thing here we're talking about the character ellie and not my lovely co-host i'm elisa for the rest of this episode elisa, okay, okay. Yes, elisa. <laughs> um, the cast also includes ty simpkins as a missionary named thomas hong chow as charlie's close friend and a nurse named liz and then lastly Samantha Morton as Charlie's ex-wife, who, who I wasn't expect. I didn't realize she was in the film Samantha Morton. So that was that. That I know, not such it a was nice a surprise. pleasant surprise. It was like, wow, Samantha Morton repping like our finest British actor. Oh. <laughs> as she pops up in, she said as well, and it's like another. Yes. In both, it's like she doesn't stay long, but my God, you're like, oh, Samantha Morton's here, and she oh. blows it out, out of the park. Stunning. Yeah. I Ooh. agree. Wait, yeah. who, who plays Dan the Pizza Man? <laughs> oh. um... <laughs> let me check dan the pizza man the whale imdb sathya street aran okay the beauty of this film is that the cast is so small that we can actually literally make everyone who had a speaking part so true so have have you guys seen any of the films by darren aronofsky i'm thinking pie because that was a hugely influential film for me as a film student growing up pie was like a big movie and then requiem for a dream requiem for a dream just it reminds me very much of The Whale in that yeah. I saw it once. There was a lot to yeah. admire and like about it, but I, I don't really want to see it again. And they're both very bleak. If you're going to get anyone to direct The Whale, it's probably the guy who directed Requiem for a Dream. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw that film in high school. So I don't, I remember liking it at the time and thinking that it was this very dark, gritty film. And I was, I didn't get a chance to rewatch it before today, but I was saying to Audra, thinking, oh, I wonder if I watched it now, I would feel similarly... Okay, I don't want to give anything of away about how I feel about the whale, but but the, the like the the representation of addicts. Yeah, sure. I wonder if now we would feel differently. Did he direct Black Swan as well? Yeah, he did. And Mother as well. I don't know if you guys saw that. I know. I haven't seen it yet, but I want to. I've heard also very mixed reviews. <laughs> I want to see Mother. It looks it looks bonkers. Oh my god, it's incredible. It, it, just bonkers. Yeah. I mean, he's <laughs> obviously a director who likes to court controversy. I think whether he'd admit yeah. it or not. <laughs> because these two films are probably the most divisive films that have come out right in the last few years. Sure. Yeah. I can't believe I've never seen, I don't think any of the movies you mentioned I've watched before. So this was my inaugural ah. Aronofsky. Because it, it, I would say it's like a completely unlike his other work. Mm, um, really? So it, it's, it, oh, yeah. There's the bleakness and darkness that is uh, in Requiem for a Dream. But as far as what he's like as a filmmaker, this is nothing like his other work, really. I think mm, mainly because wow. he, it's a stage production transposed to film. And it Absolutely, just it just yeah. kind of robs him of all his filmic techniques that when I think of Darren Aronofsky... Robs him? Is that a hint at your feelings about the film? <laughs> well, I don't, know about, I don't know about robs, but it certainly... He did, he, he did this willingly, so... Oh, yeah, it's a 
passion project for, t- for 10 years he's wanted to make it apparently yeah or more than 10 years yeah oh wow yeah wow yeah i should i don't know if i mentioned the play was written in 2012 so yeah, yeah. and apparently he almost immediately initially as a producer he was trying to get it off the ground at one point tom ford was attached with james to it, with corden james <laughs> Oh god! Oh yeah, I mean that would have been a, I feel, a very different <laughs> oh. film. Very so different, so different. Film. I can't even imagine. It wouldn't have worked at all, at all. <laughs> um, in terms of reception to the film, the critical reception has been overwhelmingly positive. It received a standing ovation at the Venice Film Festival. I've heard as short as five minutes and as long as 10 minutes for Brendan Fraser. So I think it depends on who's, you know, holding the stopwatch. But it's received a lot of nominations, awards, accolades, including Brendan Fraser won the Toronto International Film Festival's Tribute Award for performance. He was nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Actor in a Leading Role. He has a nomination, a SAG nomination for Best Actor in a Leading Role and Hong Chao has a nomination for Best Actress in a Supporting Role. And of course, three Academy Award nominations for Best Makeup and Hairstyling, Best Supporting Actress for Hong Chao, and Best Actor in a Leading Role for Brendan Fraser. And I would say he's certainly a frontrunner, along Mm -hmm. with Austin Butler for Elvis. Mm -hmm. But I was also curious, as we know, award shows, except maybe the People's Choice Award, but I'm sure that can be bought as well. (laughs) Their award shows are very much made for critics and peers Mm -hmm. in the film community. Sure. As I've gotten older and as I understand how the award show industry works, especially let's talk about the Academy Awards, when you realize Mm -hmm. that the only people who can vote for these uh, awards are members of the Academy. Mm -hmm. So they are people who have not only worked in the industry, but have worked to such a level that they were invited to join the Academy. And then you're you're a member of the Academy until you die. Oh, wow. So, so yeah, so what happens in a lot of these cases, there's, there's like a huge amount of voters who are elderly and don't work anymore and are actually in old folks' homes. So one trick that Miramax, Boo Hiss, used to employ was they would deliberately send, this is why Shakespeare in Love, this is why they think it got so many Oscars back in the days, that they sent Gwyneth Paltrow and some of the other cast and crew on little meet and greets around the old folks' homes of Hollywood. What? So, oh, so, my God. So, 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 so when it comes to voting these people are just like well i haven't seen that film or that film but that gwyneth paltrow was very nice when she came around the other day (laughs) so so you've got you've got to remember this there's a huge element of god which ones have i seen i've only seen that'll do oh i like him he was fun Mm -hmm. in his last one so and and also i think i I think there's also an element of like they also like films about themselves so Mm -hmm. for example the the artist (laughs) swept up Mm -hmm. loads of awards like 12 years ago it's a good film but i don't think it was worthy of all the oscar attention it got but it was a film about hollywood so so there's all this kind of there's this weird skewering and biasing Mm -hmm. that goes on in the awards yeah and there's so much funding that goes behind getting the screeners sent to people the academy charges i believe two thousand dollars per email (laughs) to send a film (laughs) oh my god and you can only send one email a week and so obviously the big studios have so much more money so indies are way disadvantaged and they don't have that much time to watch the films before they vote so at the end of the day Mm -hmm. like you're not going to watch 200 movies in three weeks yeah so it it really depends on what you're hearing the most of so i really wanted to know a bit more about what the audience is thinking the actual people that are coming to see this film it does have a 91 percent 
audience score on Rotten Tomatoes, which is quite high. So I was reading through some of the comments, and most of the positive reactions are mainly attributed to Brendan Fraser's performance. Mm. There's a lot of, quote, He's a tour de force, a deeply moving movie that made me want to hug my dad, gut-wrenching <laughs> Oscar-winning performance. And then most of the negative reactions seem to be about Darren Aronofsky's direction of the film and the representation of fat and disabled people. Some of the comments that I thought were particularly interesting, one person said, Aronofsky's decision to embrace the film's stage origins doesn't help matters. Mm. The stripped-down aesthetic only adds his suspicion that there's not much more to this than the body horror spectacle of its central performance. These are lay people writing such eloquent reviews. <laughs> oh <my God>. I'm <laughs> dying, <laughs> We're like, in trouble. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Academy who? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, and another one said... An interesting film about pity, guilt, and shame, but given Darren Aronofsky's habit of making the extremes of human experience look and feel like a horror film, I'm not sure it ever quite gets to empathy. Whoa. So I, I also spoke to a friend of mine who's an actor, but Lillian James, I really want to hear from you two on if you've heard any different reception in the UK. Yeah, we well, I because it only came out in the UK a week ago from, from when we were recording this. So getting a sense of what, audience makes of it it's slightly hard mm -hmm. I will say my friend went to see it the other day and the man next to her in the cinema was sobbing so oh. it's definitely moved some people yes. in, yeah. in the in the cinema that I, w I was in it was a small cinema but uh, at the end of the film I heard several people con chatting about how they were in tears so mm -hmm. there was lots of yeah. chat about that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah so <laughs> so we <laughs> we have the the personal first-hand perspective. perspective yeah but I, I looked at what the critical response was in the UK and I was kind of amazed at how mixed it was. Mm -hmm. Like The Telegraph, quite a widely read, fairly right-wing paper, gave it five stars. And The Independent, which is a bit more left-wing, gave it four stars. But then The Guardian and The Evening Standard, which is like a fairly right-wing paper both gave it two stars so initially I had this theory that perhaps people like the more right-leaning papers perhaps would like it more and the lefty less because you know concerned about the kind of controversy around it but actually no across the board there was a total mix, mix. of, yeah. of <laughs> opinion on it which I mean does make me kind of more interested in the film right if, it, if yeah. the film is provoking such a mixed response it's kind of interesting I think yeah for know, sure nothing else absolutely so will either of you or both of you tell the listeners what is this movie what is it about what's going on <laughs> plot summaries my favorite <laughs> plot summary. yeah this is always where we where we struggle but i i did volunteer before we came on air i said to james you want me to do it this time so i mean it's kind of obvious from this conversation but i feel like we should give a spoiler alert at the beginning we are going to be talking about everything in the film so yes maybe watch it before listening but to give a quick summary brendan fraser plays charlie who is a super fat man who's also very reclusive he works as an english professor but for an online class where he always keeps a screen off the camera isn't on that's you kind of discover this in the first few minutes and the film just follows him for a week of his life he's visited by three people a friend of his called liz played by hong chow uh who is also a nurse who kind of takes care of him and then his daughter also visits him who we learn has been estranged from him since she was eight now she's a teenager and they kind of reconnect through the film or at least he attempts to and then as we mentioned before he's also visited by thomas played by ty simpkins who's a missionary on a mission to try and <laughs> save charlie as he says through the film 
And yeah, so it basically, we just follow him for this week as he tries to reconnect with his daughter whilst his health is failing him. Actually, that's kind of a crucial part of it is that he is struggling with the risk of congestive heart failure brought on by overeating, basically. Yeah, I feel like that's a perfect summary and a good launchpad for, I guess, what might be the meat of our episode, the discussion. And I think as basic as it is, we were kind of thinking of starting with the question, what do you think first, the movie did well? First, when we say, what do we think the movie did well? I think it'd be interesting to each of us give one line, one sentence, and then we'll get more into the meat. So James, do you want to give us your, your one sentence? Uh, prosthetic makeup. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, Lily? Uh, the performances were very good. Audra? Oh God, no, you go first. <laughs> <laughs> the tables are turned. <laughs> Um, others may disagree, but I really liked the fact that it was all in one place, the whole film. It did not feel too stagey to me. Oh, controversial. (laughs) I was going to say the dialogue. I felt very bought into the conversations between all the characters. Like I, I didn't have that shatter the illusion moment where I could no longer suspend disbelief. Like I really felt one sentence, Audra. Sorry. The dialogue felt natural. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. This is, this is, you made the rules and now you break the rules, Audra. What is this? This is my Achilles heel. I told Elisa, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to shut up the whole episode. It's just going to be me for three hours. (laughs) I'm here to keep you in check. Okay. Now I want to hear from James and Lily start off the getting more deep into the pros. (laughs) Well, you know what? I, I'm so glad we're having this conversation because I really don't know what to feel about this film at all. So I'm hoping by the end of this, you'll help me make up my mind because I left the cinema feeling very moved and very emotional and like I mean full disclosure I watched it an hour after seeing Babylon and I don't know if you guys have seen that film but I found it rather traumatic so it was almost like (laughs) wow that's a lot of (laughs) a lot of hours (laughs) a lot of bleakness yeah it might have slightly impacted my opinion of the film because I left feeling very good about it actually I felt like the performances were amazing I also liked even though I did find it actually very stagey, which in some ways I found difficult. I've, for the whole, I like a film that's a bit more, you know, there's less, it's less complicated. It's just about the characters. And I did think the dialogue between characters was like moving. And so in general, I felt quite good about it. But the, as time has gone on, as, as this week has gone past since I've watched it, I feel less and less good about it and more and more. Actually, like maybe it, I was a bit manipulated by it. Darren Aronofsky and before we get into that Lily can I just just step in and just say I I, can we discuss the one thing that we liked about it so performance because I'd be interested in hearing so just just I'm I'm guessing we're going to go broader about the overall film yeah I wanted um, our next question is going to be like what did we did not like I think we wanted to separate it just to make sure we still talked about positive things (laughs) (laughs) so yeah let's let's talk about Let's talk about performances that we liked. I mean, I I, I thought uh, there's no denying that Brendan Fraser's performance is a good performance. If you take it it out of its entire context, that's an actor at the peak of his acting powers. And I think it's great that Brendan Fraser later in his career has shown that he's still got range and he's still got an ability and he's probably been overlooked for a few years. So, you know, I was really impressed by his central performance. Then, you know, Samantha Morton popping up and all these supporting parts. They were were all very good performances. Yeah, I thought Brendan Fraser in particular he just made me fall in love with Charlie as a character 
character and it could have been quite easy I think because he's such a you know he's he's a character who is very sensitive and sweet and says I'm sorry a lot which played by someone else you could find that kind of annoying almost right and like a little bit too pathetic basically but I didn't mm-hmm. find I felt like there was I he brought enough kind of range to it you saw a lot more in him like his yeah. all, all-roundedness even though at his core he was obviously clearly meant to be and was a, like a very good person you know yeah I definitely agree with that it felt like when he was tripping over himself to say I'm sorry so many times it felt more like it stemmed from that central place of caring so deeply about people more than just hollow self-consciousness And so I also found him so compelling. Like, I just feel boundless affection for Charlie. And I think Brendan Fraser's performance was above and beyond Mm. the rest of the cast. Not that any of the other performances were bad, per se. No, no. I did think that Sadie Sink as Ellie was, like, a little heavy-handed. But that's just a personal opinion, I guess. Well, I wondered if that was the writing, you know. I feel like the... What's it? Samuel D. Hunter. I feel like his writing, he really went for everyone else around Charlie was was super angry, perhaps to balance his softness, I suppose. And yeah, yeah, but I felt the same way. Yeah, that was like incredibly spiky to an almost like more than just your regular, you know, hurt teenager level. Yeah, I didn't, I couldn't quite imagine that she was a real person. It just felt, like I say, a bit too spiky, just a bit too much. Uh, For for her then to kind of redeem herself towards the end, it's like, okay. I I also felt that Sadie Singh's performance was a bit one note. I, I don't know if that was just due to the writing. I also didn't really know if she got a redemption. It was it was a bit unclear to me if she was continuing her kind of fascination with her father by the end. If she was just reading to him to see what he would do. If she found Thomas's family to punish him or to help him. I thought that was all unclear in a way that I found interesting. But I, I didn't get as much complexity from her. While I really liked... Ty Simpkins' performance as Thomas, the missionary, I felt like he was maybe the most complicated character in a lot of ways because we're introduced to him as this kind of innocent boy that's a bit naive about his religious revelations. And then we find out that he ran away from home, that he used to do drugs, that he stole money, that he has this kind of complicated past and is navigating both wanting to be this pure this pure like savior for charlie while also harboring this disgust for him that he doesn't really let you see until charlie kind of confronts him and is saying admit it like you find me disgusting and then when he's forgiven by his family he changes again i i felt like his whole arc was very interesting to watch and was a lot more nuanced especially in all his scenes with sadie sink i feel like he was a softer, more nuanced uh, performance to her, like, aggressive. Sure. <laughs> um, and like Lily said, I really enjoy films that are dialogue heavy and less about plot and more about relationships. And having it all set in his apartment really spoke to his immobility and his inability to access the outside world and being able to see how he has to move around his apartment and how he you know, gets into the ba- into his bed and into the bathroom and how he hides from his students on Zoom. So to me, it felt like an idea of really this is his life. He can't and does not want to leave. 
Yeah, I, I agree with you that, that I don't think broadening it out would have made the film better. I think you're absolutely right that the reason it stays in one place is so you understand that that's how Charlie experiences the world, is that all this life moves around him and he's like this static core. But it's almost like the antithesis of what I enjoy from a film is is this kind of two-hander in one location. But I was sat there thinking, I don't think trying to make this more cinematic by using more cinematic t- approaches, the way it's mm-hmm. shot, the editing, I don't think that would have made it a better story i do think that darren aronofsky is a you know he chose the right way to tell the story i just i'm not sure it's an effective filmic experience i just think yeah. i imagine watching it on stage mm. it would have worked perfectly like yeah it just didn't work as a film for me because i just missed all those things those techniques that that a film has that this didn't because you were you were essentially an observer watching a, a, a staged drama yeah that's actually when i when i mentioned at the top of the episode my friend that i spoke to she was saying the same thing and I think that speaks to her question why was this adapted and that you never write a play imagining it as a film because it's a completely different medium sure and so why was this play adopted yeah I, I, I don't know it's like like I guess filmmakers are looking for stories from everywhere so books are obviously a constant source of film adaptation and just like plays going to films books they're a different art form and there's things that are lost in translation mm-hmm. and I it's very rare that I watch the film of a book and I think it's a better uh, piece of art than the book mm-hmm. but as to why to adapt it I you know I don't know but I do suspect that Darren Aronofsky was looking for a small drama set on one in 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 limited location i think he was looking for a good low budget story because i was surprised to learn that this cost three million dollars to make that's peanuts these days so Mm -hmm. and it's made its money back so many times yeah yeah you know i'm not trying to be too cynical about it but i'm sure he was looking for a small scale drama Mm -hmm. and i I don't know why it resonated with him particularly but he was clearly looking for something that was easy going to be manageable to make on a low budget and it's it's kind of worked for him yeah i mean just to carry on that slightly cynical train I just wonder if perhaps it was just that he found the story very moving and thought I want to bring this to a wider audience yeah Mm -hmm. I imagine that as well yeah (laughs) another thing my my friend was saying which I think my I know we've said that this film is very different from other Aronofsky films but with a play the audience kind of stays in one place and this film there are a lot of close-ups onto Charlie in different scenes especially when he's eating and I wonder if that's a bit of the Aronofsky kind of voyeuristic thing of like seeing it as a play and wanting to get very close into the aspects of Charlie that you might not be able to see as well from the audience. Which Maybe, but I, I, I did think, though, cinematically, it's the most restrained Darren Aronofsky film I've seen. It's like, yes, yeah. he does go in for close-ups, but it's it's very conventional, you would say. You know, th- there's no camera angles in there that you wouldn't expect to see in a, in a decent uh, television drama. So he's he's definitely dialing down all the cinematic aspects of his technique. And I suspect that's also deliberate because he wouldn't want to be um, accused of maybe trivializing the issue by throwing lots of visual pyrotechnics at it. Right. I I do like Elisa's point about the possible voyeurism in choosing this play to adapt in the first place and then zooming in the way he does. And I think that's almost a good segue back to James, what you were saying you thought the movie did well with prosthetics. I'm Mm. curious to hear more of your thoughts on that. Yeah, sure. I mean, that's a good 
point you just made actually about the voyeurism aspect of it. I hadn't really considered that, but I'm sure there is an element of the audience. And certainly in my head somewhere there was like, wow, thank goodness that isn't me. And so that's a voyeuristic release for the mm. audience. But um, but yeah, coming back to my, the th- I mean, I've never seen um, a prosthetic makeup that's that flawless. Often when you watch somebody wearing a prosthetic makeup of any type, but especially one that's to make them look fatter, it's it's clearly a, a prosthetic makeup. This, you know, like I've never seen anything as good as this in, in the history of cinema. Mm-hmm. It certainly sells the illusion that Brendan Fraser is a super fat man. Regardless of the, the, the things that we are discussing around it were about the representation, as far as like physically realizing a very convincing, and it's very hard to imagine that Brendan Fraser wasn't actually that size on set. You know, it was very impressive. Yeah, and especially, I mean, as you're saying, in contrast to other prosthetics and fat suits that we've seen before, I watched just for the context of fatness in media, the movie Shallow Howl. <laughs> and I know that was you know, it's however many decades old at this point, but that fat suit is so unbelievably unrealistic. And <laughs> I just, I could not get over it. And maybe I believed fat suits like that when I was younger, or maybe it was just, I don't know. But also because I think because it was being done for comic effect, you know, right, in Shallow right. Howl, there's absolutely no pretense that this is anything else but for a joke. Mm. So I think there's almost that feeling that it's only for a laugh. So, you know, as long as you get that it's fat, that'll do. Whereas I think that I'm I'm sure one of the other considerations for making this so good was to say, look, we're not trying to make you laugh at them. This is not a joke. So, you know, they clearly put the effort in with the prosthetics there. I mean, even stuff like he had marbles underneath the prosthetic to get the weight of the simulate the weight of that. So, you know, like like that's kind of I've never heard of that being done before. Because I was thinking, yeah, the way that the skin and the body moves, it, it seems very realistic. But um. Yeah. Yeah, I think Brendan Fraser he 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 worked with a choreographer. Oh, wow. And, and sought lots of advice on how on how you, he would actually move with that much weight on his body. I mean, I mean it's an undeniable feat of like genuine engineering and artistry to design prosthetics like that and the fact that he worked with a choreographer which I didn't even realize is also I feel like part of why it is so believable that Charlie or Brendan Fraser as Charlie is a 600 pound man and it also begs the question and I'm sure we'll get into this later with other questions but why not just hire someone fat because this is a lot of time and money we're paying for prosthetics and the makeup artist and apparently the choreographer to make this seem believable. I, w- I was interested in what the director had to say about that. So I've been looking for articles and quotes for him about um, trying to cast um, a, a fat actor. So he said, there was a chapter in making this film where we tried to research actors with obesity, says Aronofsky. Oh, this is in Vanity Fair. Outside of not being able to find an actor who could pull off the emotions of the role, it just becomes a crazy chase. Like, if you can't find a 600-pound actor, is a 300-pound or a 400-pound actor enough? Uh, and then he also says, from a health perspective, it's impossible role to fill with a real person dealing with those issues, is what he said. So even just the physicality of filming with a, a super fat person would be unhealthy for them. Yeah, I, I totally believe that it would be very difficult to, A, to find an actor of that size and to have them be able to be on like long shoots and everything. I think also it's a liability for producers to have someone whose health is that compromised on a set and that 
any accident or emergency could be a huge issue for a production company or a studio. So I think safety wise and money wise, it's more worth it for them to hire an actor and do the prosthetics and also, you know, get accolades for those prosthetics than really trying to make this like worldwide search or or whatever it is. Um, And I think it goes back to our question of then why is this adopted if you can't find someone that fills this role and you have to create someone to fill this role. What what was begging for this much realism? And what I was going to say as well, which I don't want to sound at all dismissive of Brendan Fraser's performance or like my delight that he's sort of a household name again. And I'm delighted by that. I think his performance is unbelievably stunning. And the reason I, I still come back to, but why cast a thinner person for this role is because of how infrequently we do center stories about fatness. And I don't want to pretend that this movie is doing right by fat people, but we so rarely have movies with like fat main characters. Yeah. And I also know that fat people are discriminated against with hiring and they're paid tens of thousands of dollars less per year on average than their straight size counterparts. So it's just hard to think if we're definitely not letting fat actors play thin roles, like we, we're not going to have like a fat man playing Abraham Lincoln in a biopic, you know, like we're, <laughs> we're not letting fat people play thin people. So why are we letting thin people play fat people, especially if the number of fat roles is so disproportionately small? Mm. Brendan Fraser himself has spoken about his issues around weight, right? And having having been George of the Jungle. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> One yes. of my favorite roles that he's mm-hmm. playing. <laughs> and, and then in later years, gaining more weight and struggling to be cast. And and, and, and yeah, we haven't seen him in many things for, for a while. I remember he was in, was it The Affair a few years ago? He played that TV show. And I thought, that man looks a lot like Brendan Fraser. And it was him. So it's not, he's, I've read interviews with him where he spoke about it and said well I myself I'm not a thin actor they didn't cast someone thin so there's even something around the narrative of him as an actor that is almost in parallel to the story of this film being made because you're right there aren't there are so few films about people who aren't thin and he himself as an actor has has barely worked since aging yes but also gaining more weight and not looking like the kind of young hunk that he used to so are we saying fat suits are inherently bad because it feels like the answer is yes because if you're making weight the center of a story about someone who's fat rather than them just being a character and that not being part of it then I think that kind of feeds into the problem but then at the same time I don't want to say that like there are some stories we cannot tell and only other stories you know and and I think there's an element which is is a practical um, movie making side of it which is to tell this story and to get people to see it if it was a lesser known but correct sized actor would people would you get people an audience to see it and I'm not saying that audiences should or shouldn't see it based on the actor but that is definitely if you are trying to raise funding for a film Brendan Fraser and and he does have some lived experience of uh, weight conditions of depression so he's certainly an actor who can relate to that character but we're saying should these stories be told regardless I mean is it is that I'm sure they could have made it work at some point with an actor but from what I understand from Aronofsky's casting choices he didn't think the actors would be as good so the performance would be a less good film uh, less good performance, but certainly more accurate for representation because you are casting the appropriately sized actor. Mm-hmm. There is definitely no easy answer, is there? It's like, because Brendan Fraser being in this film 
has definitely been one of the draws for the, in fact, probably the main draw, to be honest. Definitely. It's felt like a heroic return to Hollywood. And I think that it's almost part of why it's so well received right now is because everyone just wants to welcome him with such open arms. I'm not trying to degrade his performance that it's always going to be amazing no matter what the broader context of his career is. But I do agree that a lot of people are choosing to see it because of this excitement that he's back. Well, there's kind of a millennial draw to him, right? Yeah. yeah. He was George of the Jungle and then he was the star of the Mummy movies, which we all watched as kids and loved. And then he went away and we haven't seen him since we were, you know, children. So (laughs) for a generation, there is something about wanting to cheer him on and see him in a serious role having his renaissance yeah i think definitely brandon frazier is not a thin actor at this point in his life i think also his disappearance from hollywood was highly attributed to him uh accusing was the director of the golden globes yeah someone in the golden globes that groped him and he was kind of blacklisted from hollywood for a while and he refused to go to the golden globes this year that he was nominated and so i think there's also a more complicated story behind why he wasn't being cast in things and i do think that having a fat suit or prosthetics on top of someone who's already fat maybe is like a bit of harm reduction but it's less about are fat suits good or bad and more going back to what audra was saying of we rarely are telling stories either about fat people or just stories like lily was saying of just humans living their lives and they happen to be fat and so if we had a bunch of films that star fat people or about fatness or just if we just saw fat people on tv and in films more often then i think the fat suit conversation would be less dramatic and we would say oh this story about specifically 600 pound plus people we can use the amazing art of makeup and hairstyling and all of this to tell that specific story and that story shouldn't be not represented on tv but if we're not really seeing all the because he is a he's an outlier, right? Like when we're talking about like anti-fat bias or lack of representation, we recognize that Charlie's experience as a 600 pound man is very different from the experience of smaller fat people and that it does not represent the majority of fat people. But the depiction of him as a slob, as dirty, as smelly, etc., as we see throughout the film is the same way that in our anti-fat society we attribute those qualities to people that are much smaller than charlie so while the conversation around charlie's weight is obviously not the same as like an instagram body positivity campaign the impact and the narrative around him is very similar to how we speak about smaller fat people like the idea that any fat person is on their way to death because of their weight yes yeah like we're it's almost the depiction of what it's the Thin person's boogeyman, right? Like it's what they think is the end of the fatness road. And it's the tool they use to weaponize fatness and to justify their harassment of fat people. It is what justifies telling a fat person they should lose weight because otherwise they might end up like Charlie. And that's why it's, to me, a dangerous depiction of fatness because you can say, yeah, it's about a 600 pound fat person. It's not about all fat people. Yes and no. It's it is going to justify harassment of smaller fat people. And another thing I wanted to mention as well, just with talking about Brendan Fraser in particular too, is that on the one hand, yes, he he definitely has his own struggles with weight, but that's almost why it's even more of a fever dream to me that he's making this movie because there there was a a Yale study that said, you know, showing images of fat people in such stereotyped ways like 
with soda or fast food or in ill-fitting clothing or sweating, all of which are present in the whale, that does generate in viewers of those photos or film reels more anti-fat bias and a heightened desire for distance from fat people. So we know that the way they're depicting Charlie is going to stoke anti-fat bias. And anti-fat bias is in part why Brendan Fraser couldn't get roles. So it almost feels like we're actually making the problem worse, regardless of whether or not he relates to it. We're not helping and we're also not letting fat people profit off of this. Like it, it is ultimately still very thin people profiting off the success of this movie, which is hard. Like mm-hmm. I can't imagine being having limited mobility due to my fatness, being a super fat person and as a result being discriminated against in my career opportunities and knowing that cars or restaurants or MRI machines are all inaccessible to me because of my size. And as a result, maybe I collect welfare or like social assistance and rich people resent me for that. But at the same time, those same rich people are making movies about me and profiting off of it. Like that's Mm -hmm. kind of a tough dynamic. as well. Yeah, I heard I heard Jeremy O'Harris speaking about this in a way that I thought was very helpful. He's a playwright. He wrote Slave Play and he's really amazing. He was saying that when we get into a conversation about who can write what or who can tell what stories like, oh, should men never write a female character because... We should only be writing about our one experience or should white people not write about black people or whatever. He was saying like, that's not really the problem. The problem is capital. Who's profiting off of that? So a man could write a very compelling story about a woman, but are, are women still disproportionately underrepresented and underhired and not present in writer's room and so on? So if it's not about who's telling the story, it's about where who's profiting off of this. And so if we don't balance that, then these conversations get a lot stickier i think but let's do again a one sentence of our least favorite thing just one sentence my goodness yes audra (laughs) (laughs) i can start this time i promise i have a concise answer okay i don't think we needed fatness to tell charlie's story oh my god audrey i had that exact same thought we i want to talk about that more but mine would be the camera's disgust of charlie Mm. that's how it felt to me Uh, mine would be it felt way too stage bound and stagey not not cinematic enough Mm -hmm. i felt that the film only touched on and didn't get into the meat of how trauma is held and manifested in the body especially Mm. given the contrast between charlie's overeating and his deceased partner alan's undereating yeah i felt i felt like this film there was this sort of b plot right about religion yeah which i mean is very darren aronofsky he's very into that subject matter but for me i found that quite unengaging and i was like i want to get more into what it's like for charlie if we're gonna if this film is gonna be about his struggles being a super fat person then fine let's get into that more and i felt like we're being shown that he's his interior by showing dirty exterior of his flat that's meant to tell us something about his depression but then other than that and the fact that we had these moments where the other characters in his lives called him disgusting or you know there were these moments where you you got a sense of how he is treated in the world and what that must be like but they were so fleeting and I wanted to get more into that I'm like if we're here let's talk about it let's not hide away from that because 
that for me is the only bit really of worth worth exploring. Yeah, picking up on what you said there, Lily. I um, to me that was an element of its nature as a play, um, because it, it, in a in in a play, your characters literally have to say what they're thinking and say what they're doing, and and you know, and so that was very apparent in this uh, in this film. So there was no nuance or subtext. There was no let's say we 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 read made this and we tried to make it more cinematic, and you could spend time just with Charlie where he's not speaking where you see you know these kind of things that take a bit more time that you know it it, it would have been a different story that's why I'm trying to say it's almost impossible to have told this story any other way but but I just feel that in a book you can read uh, somebody's interior monologue Um, in in a play you have to state that out loud and I I just I get I was feeling quite distanced from people just essentially stating out loud that they were unhappy with Charlie or that something so you never really felt like you were getting into the, the meat of uh, what was going on with Charlie really yeah I felt like there was too many obviously nothing is about one thing but I felt like okay is the is the main idea here religious oppression or is it his health or is it his gayness is it his relationship with his daughter is it what is it and like where's the show don't tell I mean why is everyone expressing (laughs) everything so like like everything was just I am the sister of his dead partner he died because of this and whatever and I when it is revealed that Alan his ex who killed himself was so traumatized by being excommunicated from his church and that his depression manifested in not eating and his sister Liz who then is caring for Charlie she expresses how she would show up and try to beg him to eat and now she's coming to Charlie and kind of doing the opposite and Charlie names to um his daughter to Ellie when she says how did you get this way he says outright someone very close to me died and I had a reaction I found that so interesting that the trauma of losing his partner in kind of the opposite way it's a very interesting story about mental health and him eating and like creating almost like this surface area around him to protect himself and I would have loved more about that and maybe maybe as a movie we could have the same way that we get the kind of flashbacks to him on the beach with his ex-wife and his daughter and like this time that he was happy maybe we could have gotten flashbacks of Alan or or something like that where we can see a little bit more of how this happened and I think it would have been a better movie if Darren Aronofsky had focused on one aspect of Charlie's experience and been like okay this was a play doing all these different things the film is going to be really delving into one of them because it ends up feeling so hypocritical like one thing that Elisa was mentioning before we jumped on today is the fact that there's a line pretty explicitly at some point in the movie I don't remember it exactly but I think Liz says about her brother Charlie's former partner Alan she says that church killed my brother when the reality is that church caused the like anti-queer self-loathing thoughts that led to Alan's depression. And then he ended up taking his own life. But when we talk about Charlie's death or when we think about Charlie's death, we're led to believe as the audience that Charlie ate himself to death. Like we are more directly making Charlie responsible for a death that wasn't suicide than we are making Alan responsible for a death that was suicide. And I'm not saying that any finger pointing should be happening at all, but it is just a hypocritical portrayal of like, who's at fault for these deaths? Yeah, that's exactly the anti-fat bias thing that I was kind of picking up on subliminally of Alan actually killed himself, like very 
from a point A to point B of jumping off a bridge. And obviously, you know, self-harm can look very different ways. But in this movie, he jumps off a bridge and we say the church killed him. We don't say Alan's death killed Charlie. We say Charlie killed Charlie by eating. And there's also that moment where Charlie talks about how he tried to help Alan, but he couldn't and he thought he'd be enough. And you you know, the subtext is I blame myself for his death. Because this week is his last week, right? He's he's dying and it definitely frames it as he's killing himself. He he almost is deliberately trying to, you know, he was resistant to any help. And yeah, the narrative around that is very hypocritical. And even too hypocritical with, as you were sort of mentioning earlier, the religious trauma piece of it, just too much is happening to be consistent in the meta narrative they're pushing. And the missionary Thomas, I don't even remember the exact Bible verse that he felt transformed by, (laughs) but he quotes it back to Charlie at the end. And it's about something like the sins of the flesh. Oh yeah, you have it. You have it written down. Oh, can you read it? I can't see it. (laughs) Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Mm. So I, I think in that way, like both homosexuality and fatness could be read depending on who's, I I don't know, quoting the Bible (laughs) as a sin of the flesh, but... Yeah, lust and gluttony. Right, yes. Oh my gosh, of course, the deadly sins. (laughs) But I walked away having more faith in the director's rejection of anti-queerness. Like, I, I felt more confident that the people making this movie kind of condemn Thomas for being anti queer and that in general is, like, not an okay stance to have. And that it's really not a sin of the flesh. But I didn't walk away thinking that they condemned the anti-fatness. I didn't walk away thinking that they were also problematizing Thomas for being anti-fat and considering fatness a sin of the flesh. I didn't, I don't know. I just felt that it was surprising to me that they could make the connection when it comes to homosexuality and they couldn't get there with fatness. Well, yeah, because every time he ate... The music, the score would come in. The swelling. (laughs) I saw a version that was for um, audio description. So it had subtitles in English, but also in brackets would tell you all the music and sound effects. So every time there was. So every time a sequence came up, it would say, grim music plays. (laughs) There you go, perfect example. Yeah, this music would swell Mm -hmm. and the camera would, it would either be above him looking down on him or when he stood up, it was from this angle to kind of suggest this like horror that like this is a moment where he's like feeling so much emotionally that he has to express it in in this addiction. It's definitely a a sense of this like compulsive addiction and and just framing his eating in this way. Definitely, it seemed to me... did feel like a value judgment that yeah it definitely felt like we were supposed to be disgusted by him like when the music swells and he's putting two slices of pizza on top of each other with like ranch dressing and then wiping his hands on his shirt and zooming into grease on his mouth like it's very clearly leading the audience to think something which also felt a bit too like you could have him be very overwhelmed and then cut to another scene and see like a stack of a lot of pizza boxes behind him or something like so that's what felt to me of like really trying to hit home on this anti-fat message of really trying to show him as the most disgusting thing that you want to be 
averts to. Those sequences we're talking about, which I, I do agree, they, they were played for horror, basically, you know, with these sequences. But I also sat watching them because I'm someone who struggled with, like, urge control, especially with food and drink. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. It, it completely reminded me that's what it's like when you, you have a low mo- when you have a low moment and the thing you shouldn't do is the thing that you can't stop doing. It's like wh- towards the end when you just started binging, I was like, you know, as much as you may say the sentiment behind it, it certainly felt authentic. It was a good yeah. piece of performance. Wh- whether its inclusion is useful or not, I don't know. But I sat there thinking, you know what, They've, that feels like what it's like. This kind of, he can't stop himself. And, and he, you know, it's just, he's, he's, he's addicted. To that point, I liked more the scene where he starts, he's sitting at the kitchen counter and he starts getting overwhelmed and he opens one drawer that has like a granola bar and then he closes it and opens the drawer that has all the candy and you see him kind of negotiating that that to me felt much more nuanced and like the push and pull of i know what i'm supposed to do i don't want to do that and then ultimately going into the temptation i felt that was so much more like that hit that point rather than the vomiting and the overwhelming stuff i feel like you can give that same sentiment without the the over sensationalizing yeah. and also when the ex-wife comes and she struggles with alcohol there's a moment where she says do you have anything and he says yes in the cabinet and she takes out vodka and serves herself that moment also seems more nuanced of her getting overwhelmed and reaching for her crutch and we see it also a a bit more empathetically yeah and liz was smoking too yeah exactly so things like that that felt like oh it's reasonable that when you're overwhelmed there's certain things that are going to soothe you because that's what you rely on and in certain scenes it's seen as right that's what you're reaching for you're hurting and with charlie there's i felt like there was only really one scene that felt that gave him that same grace of experience of of hurt and reaching for the comfort it felt like it was coding all of these different things as vices, but Charlie's vice is the only one that we blame someone for. We don't problematize at all Liz smoking. We yeah. don't problematize Mary drinking. And we think of it as just sort of, you know, a, a byproduct of living a, a complicated life in super Christian Idaho. <laughs> but we do blame Charlie for his binging and i agree with you ellie too that and this is just based on personal experience i actually don't struggle with binge eating disorder so i really don't know what an authentic representation of that would look like but i like i think most human beings do have cravings and a complicated relationship with food and i felt like that musketeers the three musketeers candy bar scene in the drawer that's what it feels like i feel like when i'm overeating i have the sense of knowing I shouldn't and doing it anyway and being confused and like having a bite and then being like that's it and then you go back and you're like okay just one more bite and then you leave and then you go back and you're like okay just one more bite that so that sort of like internal struggle and the pace of it felt way more realistic to me than seeing someone I honestly almost felt like the binging scene was like a choice more than an out of control moment like to see him stack two slices of pizza with bologna and ranch dressing or mayo on top, it that to me almost felt like a caricature of overeating or a thin person's idea of overeating. And I'm, I don't know because, again, it's not something I struggle with. And I also just don't know if they did consult fat people who overeat on how to f- 
film that. I, I don't know about shot to shot, but I do know that Brendan Fraser and Darren Aronofsky, they worked closely with a, a found, a Obesity Action Coalition to make sure that the portrayal was as, as close to their experience as possible. But I, I, I don't, I, but I, do know, I don't know how shot for shot and all that and, kind of and stuff. And they have a statement actually on, on their website where ah. they, well, they, they answered a lot of questions about it. And it sounded like Brendan Fraser, he met with a lot of different people who shared this experience to inform it. So um, having said that, I mean, this, the storyline itself, that probably, I imagine, was already written into the script before they, you know, before any of that. So I don't... Yeah, he, on, in the play, he eats on stage as well. I, I do think that it does seem very realistic as to how someone would binge. I think this leads into both Audra and Lily's initial line of criticism of do we need fatness to tell this story and like maybe a, a scene like this what is the point of showing it versus implying it and how does that inform the role of fatness as like a central element to to this story right because i do feel like i have very very strong opinions on this and i know that so i'm open to being swayed otherwise but i just don't think it needed to be implied at all. I don't think we needed fatness to tell this story, whether it was like in gory detail or just empty pizza boxes in the next scene after we cut from the former, because that would still be using fatness as the prop to signal failure, to signal grief. Let me pull up actually this quote that I found from Samuel D. Hunter, who wrote the play. He said in an interview with the credits, Quote, there are all these little pebbles that we accumulate that weigh us down in different ways. All five of these characters are weighed down by different things and they're desperate to shed them, but we can't. We can't process them. I think that's the tragedy of Charlie is he has never had a therapist or personal reckoning. He's just still carrying all of this grief and trauma around. So it's just very directly using fatness as a tool to highlight Charlie's grief or more aptly, Charlie's failure to process grief. Yeah, totally. I mean, because if can we just do a thought experiment for a minute and imagine if he isn't someone who's super fat, you know, even just like kind of average range. Yeah, yeah, average range of, of, of fatness. That story would still be interesting, right? And actually, what I think you mentioned about um, his ex-wife drink having a drink problem and his friend Liz smoking, the fact that she picks up her cigarettes she keeps her cigarettes at his house and comes over and smokes so there is yeah. there is a, like a hint there of this idea that they will have their their own addictions and actually if we had if the film had explored that much more because the fact is we all have a relationship with food that is probably to some degree at moments if not you know it's very common to have this kind of issue to have issues mm -hmm, around mm -hmm. eating one way or another so it's definitely a film, a subject worth exploring for most people. It's probably why the film did so well in a sense, because we all relate to the subject to some degree. But there's no reason not to explore it. There's no reason to explore it in this way with such extremity, because you're right, then it is creating this physical manifestation, which which has this judgment around but the, it. But then it's yet another film that the role, that, that it's portrayed by a thin, slender person. You know? But it, well, no, I'm saying it wouldn't have to be. You know, Brendan Fraser could have played that role without the prosthetics. And I feel like that would have been worthwhile. I'd have loved that movie. Mm. And, right. And you could have a fat person who is struggling with grief, but that's not why they're fat. And we're not talking about their fatness besides, I mean, even I think you were saying something earlier, Lily, about 
wanting to know maybe more about what are the struggles of someone living this life in this body. And I don't think we need to excise someone's fatness from them to give them dignity. I think fat is neutral. And I would love to know, you know, maybe there's this person and he's struggling with grief and simultaneously he struggles to find the right clothes or mobility aids or get appropriate treatment from doctors because we do know that fat people are more likely to have severe health conditions missed because doctors just tell them to lose weight. So their cancers and autoimmune Mm, conditions go undiagnosed. If we could see that in a movie, I would love that. Or if we could see sort of like Suki and Gilmore Girls, a fat person who is fat and has a career, has a husband, has children, and their fatness is just another neutral descriptor. I would love that. But there, I agree, James, in the sense that I, I think you're right about needing to be careful towing the line of we want fat characters to be there. So I, I don't want to erase them. Yeah, it, it seems to me as well. It's like at least, at least, but it, it's, it, I've not gone to the cinema and seen a super fat person portrayed for dramatic effect. And I'm, I'm not, so, and, and I think we can all agree this film doesn't quite work for a bunch of different reasons as, as a satisfying film. But maybe this is an initial first attempt you know at let's say let's get fat characters that aren't played for laughs let's try and get dramatic roles okay what hasn't worked this time around and you know here we are having this discussion which i'm finding fascinating by the way because i'm thinking about things that i haven't really considered about the film and Mm -hmm. yeah it's interesting yeah i think also with i don't necessarily have an issue with with someone in a film being fat because of trauma or an eating disorder like when we're when we're lining it up with the other addictions that we see in the film you can live without smoking a cigarette you can live without drinking you have to engage with food to continue living and so his experience of the thing that he's negotiating is he can't get rid of that he has to eat to live and we're only seeing it as he's eating to die he's eating and he's dying like he does need to eat some amount and so that's what's so difficult with eating disorders is that you can't get rid of the thing that's haunting you if you want to stay alive and so i think something like a story that if an alcoholic had to have a drink three times a day but not go over that how difficult that must be for someone who's struggling with that. And so if we had gotten that lens a bit more rather than this guy has no willpower, it's like he still has to engage with the thing that he struggles with. Yeah. Right. Because even Liz, his friend, and she's also sort of a nurse by trade, says to him, I hate you for doing this to me again. Sort of like I already had to lose Alan and I'm not blaming Alan for why he passed, but I'm sort of willing to blame you for this thing. But you're right, Elisa, that the movie doesn't fully complicate what it really must be like to, if grief does inform your relationship with food, to have to eat three times a day or theoretically eat three times a day and what that feels like. Mm -hmm. That's so true. So yeah, I'm changing my idea for this thought experiment. Instead, why does it have to be his last seven days of his life? Why does it? Why do we have to know from the beginning that yeah. he is going to die by the end of this film? Because right. you need it for storytelling. You need some. You need some. You, you need some. You, you, need, you, need, you need. You need some reason for, for the film to exist. Yeah, you need something. Otherwise, it's just. I like understand. A... We need some stakes, but but most films, the person doesn't die at the end fair um, enough well, yeah okay, that's not true not most many do but yeah you know because you're right it feeds into the idea that if you eat too much it will kill you this like false narrative around 
eating that the reason people you know are repulsed by people who are fat is because we're worried about your health you're gonna kill yourself which is a which is a terrible reason to be mean to someone like even if that is your genuine concern oh i'm just worried about your health discriminating someone because of their health status is like a fucked up thing to do right like do you know what causes (laughs) hypertension being harassed in the street every day literally (laughs) and it's like you don't care you do not care yeah you don't care You're just making yourself feel better and more virtuous because at least you're not that fat. But also, speaking of his last seven days of life and how acute his health concerns are, something else that really annoyed me was that his health issues only robbed him Mm -hmm. of joy. Like... He, when he orgasms, when he eats, when he laughs, he starts choking and like borderline having heart attacks every time there's something remotely joyful. But when he's sobbing, when he's screaming, his heart attacks don't jump in there. (laughs) Like they only rob him of joy. It's just such a transparently Mm anti-fat portrayal of the health issues ostensibly stemming from his quote obesity can we talk about that for that opening scene for a minute because yes (laughs) my initial reaction so the opening scene charlie is masturbating watching gay porn and and he's interrupted but before he's interrupted it it caused them to have start to have a heart attack basically is that some sort of tachycardic situation yeah so it's the kickoff of him being told you're gonna die basically because of this and before the heart attack kicked in i did i was kind of thinking this is good it's nice to see a regular person masturbating to get Mm -hmm. born so actually my initial reaction to it wasn't wasn't wholly negative but i'm like why does it start that way? Like, what is, other than, you're right, to kind of, again, suggest this idea that it's all of his pleasures cause him pain because of what he's done to himself. Yeah, what is the right. point of starting in that way? If not to, like, almost to shock us, right? Is it is it meant to do that? What do you guys think? Yeah, I, I, I always wonder about that introduction. And, and I don't really have a, a, a solid thought on what the director's intent was. What I do think, though, is that it shows how good a performance Brendan Fraser was because it's it's a very like as an introduction for characters go you know masturbating to gay porn and just like it it just it's not the most empathetic introduction to a main character and yet he wins you around very quickly very quickly so so like i don't know what the intent of that scene was but as far as like showing how masterful brendan fraser is he wins you around from that not the best introduction for our main character no i definitely agree with that to be able to have like such range in such a matter like a matter of a few minutes Especially because, as Lily mentioned, he's interrupted. Thomas, the quote missionary, arrives and he's able to sort of play off the okay, first I'm masturbating, then I'm like low key having a heart attack or something, then I'm also interacting with this Christian missionary. He's doing that all in a matter of minutes, if not seconds, which is pretty masterful. But I do think the fact maybe that he's walked in on not to say the word voyeuristic for the eighth time but it does feel like we're kind of just denying him privacy but also dignity like the fact that he can't have these Mm -hmm. joyful moments the fact that he can't have privacy and even the fact that after thomas walks in he then asks for thomas's help getting his phone off the floor or something i believe I think the movie is trying to get the audience to think of Charlie as like at ultimate rock bottom. Like this is someone who was just caught by a missionary masturbating to gay porn and almost dying. And he's like, he's lost any sense of shame because he's so far gone that he can, I don't know. I just, that's, that's sort of the takeaway that I had. It feels like pity more than empathy. 
yeah. the way the story is told. Something mm-hmm. else I was going to mention mm-hmm. was how they also use proximity to thinness as a signal of sort of perceived virtue when Charlie says he wasn't always this big, almost as if no matter how distantly past that thinness can maybe contextualize or excuse some perceived transgressions, if that makes sense. Like, okay, so what if you were always this big? Does that make you less worth yeah. worthy of a person? Like, why does that matter? Uh, right. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That's interesting, yeah. And I mean, can we just talk about the title and the whole Moby Dick of it all? I'm like, <laughs> I mean, we can't even really have a conversation about if this is dehumanizing or not without being like hello you're calling this where this the scene at the end when he stands up at the exact moment that his daughter is saying a big animal and like the light and the music and him standing i'm like oh my god you're literally comparing this <laughs> man to a whale and then right. like nah this is not anti-fat this humanizes like- <laughs> him yeah yeah I, I did think it was quite heavy-handed with the ending because I, I i got yeah. the fact that his whale was his relationship with with uh, his daughter that he was searching for but uh yeah to, i don't know yeah the, the execution at the end was a bit 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 on the nose wasn't it? yeah i think i also generally didn't fully understand why that essay his daughter wrote is what like brought him back down from the brink of death every time he was having these cardiac <laughs> events. Well, that the essay was rubbish, right? Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> rubbish, but honest. I was like so relieved that it was his daughter. So I'm like, okay, fine. That makes a lot more yes. sense. You're not actually yeah. a terrible English teacher. <laughs> I don't, you know, he didn't seem to be, but then I was like, you're obsessed with this essay that's crap. Okay, yeah. no, it's your daughter's, and she was she was eight. That's that's cute. Love that. Or, or she, actually, no, she was older, wasn't she? Cause she was in eighth grade. Eighth, yeah. eighth grade. Oh, yeah, okay, I don't know how old that is, but yeah. Like older 13. That. Oh, my God, 13. <laughs> right. But as James mentioned, I guess Charlie, as an English teacher, does really prioritize and value honesty. I guess I'm sort of curious what your all's thoughts on that thread was. Lily's shaking her head already. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it just seemed so... It didn't seem to equate to anything. Yeah. Not that he was a dishonest person, but there was no part of his story which, like, spoke about being honest when... Or like how how, it, how in the past some dishonest thing ups, you know I don't know it yeah just, it, there was nothing it, about the the truth element to it didn't seem to fit with anything else that was going on his daughter wasn't honest with him she was like taking pictures of him and then putting on them li- online without telling oh, her so it yeah. seemed a bit of it that just didn't seem fully thought out to me yeah I feel like mm-hmm. it would have made more sense if his big thing was optimism because everything that was negative he would try to turn it around like Ellie's taking pictures of him and posting it on Facebook and saying this stuff and he's like she's a good writer but the honesty bit the only time where we see him addressing it specifically to himself is showing his body at the end to the class Mm -hmm. which I also was like like you're asking everyone else to write an honest thought and the movie is saying that the only honest thing that he can do is show the world what he looks like not who he is inside yeah and I didn't know what was the express sorry this is going slightly off piece but why was everyone's everyone's on the camera going oh 
this look of shock and horror I know, at this man. Yeah. And I thought, what are we? And they're filming what it. Are we, what are we meant to tell from that? That everyone is shitty and and yeah. and because I mean, I know that already. You know what I mean? Like it was very strange. Yeah, like they're meant to be college educated people. That surely they wouldn't react like that. They'd be more empathetic. I don't you know. You would hope, but no. The students literally, you can see in their little tile on the Zoom call that they've pulled out their phones yeah. and are filming so him. Weird. The other thing I was thinking about and thinking about this was the fact that Brendan Fraser, as you said at the start, is being nominated for an Oscar and is it seems like to win the bookies have it that he he's gonna win. And feels like an interesting point to get to on this road we've been on since the eighties of male actors yo yo dieting in order to win awards. You know, Robert De Niro gained sixty pounds mm-hmm. for Raging Ball and won the Oscar for that. Edward Norton gained weight to be an American history X. Obviously Christian Bale has yo yoed from losing loads of weight to be in the machinist to then bulking up and being muscly to be Batman and then playing mm-hmm. Dick Cheney and gaining a lot of weight for that. And Daniel Day Lewis as well, he's won an Oscar. And so this idea that it shows you're a great actor if you're going to go to that length. I just thought Brendan Fraser was kind of fitting into that same path. But we don't, We this doesn't seem to be the same thing for women actors, right? Women, women actors very rarely gain weight. And the narrative around it tends to be, oh my gosh, when are they going to lose the weight? You know, Charlize Theron was treated terribly after Tully mm. and Renee Zellweger has spoken about the, the kind of hate she received from tabloids after she gained, you know, what was it, like five pounds or something yeah. to be Bridget Jones. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know, I just wondered what you guys thought about that, basically. Mm. Yeah, I think it goes... It goes back to what we were speaking about earlier. We're not creating roles for fat people. And if there is a fat character in a story, it's going to be played by a well-known actor who's going to gain the weight. And somehow their ability to gain weight means that they're good performers, (laughs) even though those are completely two different things. And I'm always so curious about if we didn't have press conferences about the film, about films in general, if you didn't tell me what you were thinking before you did it, like if you have to tell me what your performance was, then you weren't mm. performing. Like the, the piece should stand on its own. Mm. And I've been noticing so much about the press conference around, like the press around the whale has been really focused on Brendan Fraser's return to Hollywood and him saying, mm. I never thought I would get an opportunity like this. And there's kind of the, oh, I want him to win because I feel so happy mm-hmm. for Brendan Fraser. And I do think his performance is Oscar worthy, but it's an interesting feeling of tapping into not what I felt during the film, but what I feel towards him as an actor and as a person and telling us all the things that method actors do behind the scenes makes us project more value onto a performance. Well, if we never knew... I, th- I, th- I think it's a really good point, Ray, and it probably goes back to what was mentioned at the top about uh, how the Academy Awards are just very strange and biased because of how mm-hmm. they work. And, and of course... Hollywood loves a redemption arc. They yeah. love the mm. actor who was the golden boy, the f- underdog. fell from grace. I'm sure there's a part of it that is is playing into that. Is said, hey, Academy voters, do you want to feel good for you, about yourself? Then vote for Brendan Fraser because he he's co- he's a comeback kid. No, yeah. that's such a good point that it's almost it's so interesting just the pairing of it being Brendan Fraser and this movie because that's so true like giving it attention but i also feel bad because i am i'm I'm happy is bad i feel bad bringing (laughs) this up i'm like like delighted and (laughs) it's but it's so true that like yeah it's it's true that going and seeing this movie or if you're in the academy voting for it is sort of a way to like i don't know 
pat your own back a little bit because you feel like you're supporting something you do really truly want to support even if a lot of the narrative itself is garbage (laughs) yeah it's very difficult to parse through like you know lily was saying i don't know i saw babylon first and then i saw this and that's so babylon's like three hours and then (laughs) you went and watch another film after like like there's so many things that can color what you're thinking and especially if you hear this the story of charlie in his last days trying to reach some sort of redemption and feeling like i i want to make things right and i don't want to leave this earth without feeling like i did something good all the empathy that we have for that arc of him trying to redeem himself and then we have brendan fraser kind of mirroring that right, of, right. i'm 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 coming back into hollywood and everyone's so excited and and, and speaking of charlie's redemption arc can we talk for a brief moment about the conflation of doing something right with your life and giving his daughter $120,000. I was so confused about that. I did not understand that that at all. I I just want to give, do one right thing in my life by giving somebody a big load of cash. I was like, when there's a kid, this kid, I'm like, this kid is 17 years old. Go to the doctor. Like the fact that his reasoning, because when he first said that he didn't want to go to the doctor's office, I thought he was going to say, because he doesn't get listened to or doesn't get treated right or something like that. Mm-hmm. And when he says this, oh, I don't have health insurance. I was like, oh, oh my God, another issue in America. And then when it comes out that he has money, I was like, wouldn't it make more sense to spend the money and take care of yourself and then live a long life with your daughter? Like, why do you need to give a 17 year old $120,000? I'm so confused. Yeah, it did. It yeah. really felt like the message was he would be better dead. But with, yeah. Like, with, she yeah. would be better off with his money than with her father. Yeah. Because I also didn't Ugh. fully understand. I mean, of course, people lose touch or things happen in families for multiple reasons but I was slightly confused as to why they if they live in the same town why he hadn't seen her since she was eight I thought okay but his wife said no I I understand but like she came around you know what I mean they actually had a bit of banter so I thought yeah you probably could have thought out that relationship a bit earlier I realize it's for the story but within this (laughs) narrative it seemed like yeah what is the message again is that someone this size is cannot be a good parent their money is more worthwhile to mm, the, more useful that's a great point I also if we're, we're just on his daughter for a second I was also I didn't get the the idea that she at the end it turns out she is a good person because she gets the missionary back in touch with his family Thomas back in touch with his family I thought I didn't read that from her as yeah well. me either <laughs> I'm, but, but but that wasn't her int- that wasn't her intention I was don't it? think like, so just, I'm not I mean, if that was if that's trying to let us know that the remind us that Charlie just sees the good in people, that would yeah. be fair enough. But again, that didn't seem to be what it was trying to say. Right. That's just yeah. what <laughs> it seemed like a happy accident that the family yeah. reacted well because she recorded him in the same way that she would take photos of Charlie and then she puts his photo on the internet in a mean way. Right. She and says it, there will be a grease fire when he burns I in hell, is like what she that. said. And if I was Charlie, I'd be like, you know what? I've got a few things I want to talk to before yeah. we get onto the whole <laughs> right. you, you read me your old essay. I wanted this bloody comment online. Yeah, and exactly. again that him going, Oh well, she's honest. <laughs> so that's not a good reason to be that's not a good use of honesty. So mean. And that's that's part of too why like because we are I think supposed to align so much with Charlie and appreciate his optimism. That's why it does feel like it's excusing the harassment 
of fat people. Like he yeah, very exactly. literally excuses it, even He's though she's being... always the one apologizing. He's saying sorry to everyone in the film all the time, and yeah. she posted you on the internet. And so her sending the recording and like identifying where Thomas is to his family and previous church seemed malicious to me and then he just got lucky and they were like we want you yeah, back that, that didn't quite land for me at all it's, no. it's also like too quick of a turnaround to be realistic like i don't think this girl who's held on to trauma and anger and resentment towards her father is gonna just you know in one week turn it around and be and change everything about her behavior and attitude no and and sort of to that point he also has this you know love of his life who's passed away many years ago and he also I think at the end, but correct me if I'm wrong, doesn't he say that he lost his job? Like, didn't the university fire him and that was his last class? Yeah, yeah, I've forgotten that bit. They really doubled down on, oh, and his lover is dead. Oh, and he doesn't talk to his daughter and he loses his job and all of this stuff that did start to seem unrealistic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is the, the thing with the film being a stage plays that you've you've got to cram it all in mm. it, like it, like and and so you know like nowhere in real life does so many of your people that you know your ex-wife comes around and it's like right. and that to me was part of what was the staginess of the film was like you know on top of like is this a good representation it's like well would these people have these conversations this close together all the time and so you've got layers upon layers of things that just don't quite land right and so it's just it's just bringing it i think if you were sat in a theater watching it you'd kind of accept them more because you yeah. realize you are you you need to wrap this story up but in a film there's something about the claustrophobia yeah. uh, and the way it's presented that that it almost highlights how improbable all these scenarios that we're experiencing including like you say at the very end it's this spiral of just everything gets mm. so bad very quickly uh, but i guess they've, they've got to end it somehow in a, in a dramatically satisfying way did you find the ending satisfying um i i'll i found it baffling i I found (laughs) i just figured that was where it was going like i I didn't i just thought he's probably going to die at the end and he'll reconcile with his strange daughter and then that will give us the sense of an ending and (laughs) Mm -hmm. that and that occurred and so i wouldn't say it was satisfying it was like just kind of what i thought i was gonna get for some reason i thought you said his strange daughter not a strange daughter (laughs) and i was like so true james yeah i mean you know works on many levels (laughs) yeah one thing that my my friend claudia the actor said was that shout out to claudia yes shout out to claudia (laughs) she had a great insight which was an ending should be inevitable but surprising and that Mm. this ending was inevitable but not surprising like we knew we were leading to his death Mm -hmm. but the way that he died and the way that it was put on wasn't a compelling way to end it yeah. and the white light also felt a bit strange to me with the whole yeah. religious undertones like what was that i don't understand uh, that, that felt to me that felt to me like the hand darren aronofsky going great some religious stuff to play with yes. let's bathe him in heavenly light you know it, it just felt like it was something about because so much of the film the, the horror moments as james said were when he's moving and, and struggling to move because of his weight do you think him suddenly the light behind him and him like floating up is something trying to say something about now he's weightless he doesn't have the like the emotional weight trauma oh. holding him down is that what oh. it's meant to be <laughs> maybe so corny, <laughs> also you know? th- i would be interested to know if they did that on stage because it does feel again it feels stage it like very, you can imagine yeah, you totally. can imagine a lot somebody cra- turning the light up and it gives I you know. that effect but, and yeah i felt like if it is going to be a metaphor 
for weightlessness, then I think the whole film could have had the metaphor. It's like, well, <laughs> like pick a lane. I don't know. It felt. I, I I I think in the reading of the rest of the film, which is it's fairly on the nose, then I think that white light is just the doorway to heaven opening up, and yeah. there's no and there's no <laughs> lightness metaphor. It almost feels yeah. like we're gonna read it like the rest of the film. Yeah. No, but I mean, like Lily said, it, it that white light and that weightlessness or closure that they might be trying to signal he's achieved does double down on the idea that he really is better off dead not to be Mm -hmm. so dark but that is sort of how it feels is like this is actually better now Mm -hmm. which is a really tough tough message to be pushing especially because and again i know that the playwright samuel d hunter did struggle with fatness and his own relationship with food and how that relationship with food was informed by being gay in the church. But as a fat activist, Aubrey Gordon, who wrote some of the books that Elise and I have read, says in her most recent book, none of us needs to magically overcome our disordered eating or body image, but all of us have a responsibility to get support in a way that doesn't threaten somebody else's dignity or healing. And to me, this does feel like the author processing his own body image, but in like a publicly millions of dollars of funding award-winning way that will materially harm fat and super fat people and I actually was thinking about I was also thinking about just when we're talking about like quote morbidly obese people and the conflation of like fatness with death at every turn even in the medical field Mm -hmm. it it does even the term morbid (laughs) right like After Eric Gardner was killed at the hands of New York City police officers, the attorney that was defending the police officers was saying that if Gardner was put in a bear hug, it would have been the same outcome because he was a morbidly obese person and he was basically a ticking time bomb anyway. So like this is the conflation of like this kind of fatness leading to an inevitable death, as we're saying with this ending, it, it really harms people yes in the medical field and even when we bring sort of the intersectionality of like race and racial justice into Mm. the mix as well Mm. totally i feel like Mm. we've really touched on almost everything (laughs) i know i would say it's been a very all-encompassing chat for sure yeah the only thing we wanted to do was end on a bit of a lighter note so we had like a a little lightning (laughs) round love that okay Um, first question audra if you had to recast any of the characters, which character would you recast and with whom? I mean, for me, James Corden was... <laughs> he, he was robbed of that role. Definitely. Oh, my God. James Corden oh is God. Charlie. I can see it now. Ideal. Ideal. For, for me, like, again, it's not because I want to recast him because it was bad, because I would be interested to see this film, but Orson Welles in his mm. later life, you oh, know? Oh, nice. Oh, that's so interesting. Uh, okay, what do you think Charlie's favorite book is? You can't say Moby Dick. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> Probably like To Kill a Mockingbird or something. Oh. I feel like he's got really classic tastes. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I'm struggling here. I feel like it'd be just some, uh, with all his positivism, some self-help book, but uh, that's not <laughs> He loves just... Brene Brown. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he loves Brene Brown. <laughs> I, I remember once I was I was I was at a, a, a dinner party with an English teacher, and they said their favorite book was Marley and Me. Oh my god! Which, <laughs> I was like, wow. Okay. Wow. <laughs> 
said it. So um, what I'm saying is it, it's it's possible because that was a real English teacher. Oh, goodness. <laughs> okay. Next question. If Charlie had not died and lived long enough to find love again, who do you think would play his love interest? Oh, I love that question. I would go for more like stunt casting. So this is not like anything. It would break the whole reality of the film, but I'd be like, let's team, team him back up with Sir Ian McKellen. Oh. Let's get Sir Ian McKellen. <laughs> <laughs> love that. <laughs> and every guy... Oh I love that. But if we're going to go down that route, I think we should get him with um, with The Rock. With oh, there we, there we go. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh. That's it. That that will be his lover. Yep, yep. Sold. <laughs> I mean... The sequel. <laughs> <laughs> the Whale and The Rock. <laughs> <laughs> the Whale on The Rock. <laughs> the Whale Cinematic Universe started here, guys. Oh, my God. Oh Someone call Hollywood. We have a pitch for them. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Um, I kind of want to end on that one, but our last question was, where is Dan the Pizza Man now? Oh, God, Dan the Pizza Man. He's obviously a very lonely man, isn't he? To have knocked on and been like, hello. So... He probably went to film school and he's now like an aspiring film director with a great story he wants to make about a guy he once met. Oh my gosh, it's the origin story of Darren Aronofsky. (laughs) (laughs) Tying the universe together. Yes. Oh my god, that's oh, perfect. Amazing. So what do we give the film out of 10? What's your rating? So I'll go for like a 3 or 4 out of 10. A 3.5 out mm. of 10. Okay. Because I think it's a great central performance. You can't argue with the craft uh, as, as far as mm-hmm. how well it's all done. It just didn't work for me as a film, you know, and, and uh, mm-hmm. as we have discussed at some very enjoyable length. I would give it a 5 because... As we have discussed at length, there's a lot wrong with this film, but the performance was very good. I have to mm-hmm. admit, I found I found it very watchable. And yes, that's probably because it was a chaser to Babylon. But even so, <laughs> I I did kind of enjoy is probably the wrong word, but I found it engaging. So I got to give it a, a five out of ten. I'm going to say that it's hard. I'm going to give it a two out of ten. I, I was so engaged and curious and so endeared to Charlie, but at the same time, even though it does highlight important things about mental health and trauma and anti-queerness in the church, I hesitate to say it was at all productive just because of how materially this will harm fat people and their ability to access care. Mm. And I do still think that one of the main messages, even though Samuel D. Hunter himself says he doesn't like the idea of one thesis statement, to me, one of the main thesis statements is sort of like it is better for your family when you're that fat to just die. So mm. I'm going to have to give it a two out of ten. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm with Lily. I'm giving it a five. I think the lack of points is for everything we discussed today. And the giving of points is because I think it's really impressive when a film can show me something that I empirically disagree with. And I was so engaged the entire time. I was Mm. extremely emotional. While I was watching it, I was sad and uncomfortable and happy at, I feel like, all the beats where that was what I was supposed to feel. And to feel that about something that I was like, oh, no, I don't like what's going on, I think speaks to the good stuff about the the film itself. Absolutely. Totally. Well, I feel like we covered it all. <laughs> it's been great. Thanks for having us on, guys. This has been our first collab. Such a great conversation. Please tell everyone where they can find you and any other work other than the pod that you want to plug or anything else that you want to 
want to say? Well, we're we're on all all your major podcast platforms, Spotify, Apple. Just search Groovy Movies. Our new series begins this week, so you can Ooh, listen to us. Yay. And yeah, thanks so much for having us, guys. And we'll link your stuff in the show notes as well, so it's thanks. easily accessible. Yeah, if you want to hear two two people having a laugh and talking about films, Groovy Movies. We strongly recommend. Culture Colander is produced by Elisa Nolasco and Audra Fitzgerald. Show art by Angela Cho and music by Santiago Hervella. Research for each episode is conducted independently and is for entertainment purposes only. Information shared in the show reflects the best we know at this moment in time, and there is always more to learn. 